Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's the Keith Walsh Podcast. It's essential like your breakfast. It will get you up and going, learn some things you didn't know. Yeah, it's the Keith Walsh Podcast. It's the Keith Walsh Podcast. Give you energy like buck fast. And if your head's in a pickle or you're looking for a giggle, it's the Keith Walsh Podcast. Yeah. It's gonna be a sober, sober Christmas without booze. Can't get the low notes. Can't get down there, you know what I mean? I tried. I have, um, I'm just looking at my phone here because I have some notes written on my phone. And also, I've limited my phone use. Sorry, this is the Keith Walsh podcast, as you might have guessed. Because you clicked on play on the Keith Walsh podcast, so you, you probably know that already. Anyway, uh, I was just looking at my phone there. I've done this thing where I'm limiting myself to three hours of social media apps a day. Which is quite a lot when you think about it, but it's not enough. So at a certain time, they all turn off. And then to access them, I have to click in to each individual app. And then it says, no, you've reached your limit on Twitter. And then you you have to ask it to allow you for another bit of time. So you can say, you can ask for one more minute, uh, 15 minutes, or ignore limit for today, which I would feel very bad doing. But you have to do that for each app. So it makes it, it really does limit your use because if you do use Twitter, then you have to go to the bother of doing it with um Instagram, if you want to have a little goo on Instagram, because I tend to do what a lot of people do with social media apps. I just, I do what I used to do when I was young and I, I just, you just look in the fridge or in the press to check to see if any food appeared that wasn't there 10 minutes ago when you looked. And that's what I do with social media and just be, I just be looking at it. Nothing's going on. Do you know what I mean? Um, so... That's the crack. Anyway, I did say that uh, I was going to be chatting to Helen O'Reilly and um, I put up a tweet and said, if you have any questions, hurry up, get them in. And I didn't give people much time because I just put it up about 15 minutes ago. Anyway, um, hashtag recovery hour. And this is, I think this Instagram, uh, this Twitter account is called um, at recovery hour. Sandra. Hi, Sandra. Thank you very much. And she wants me to let everybody know that uh, please shout out Recovery Hour will have its Zoom room opened all year, sorry, all over Christmas and New Year for people struggling to stay sober. Special event on Monday 21st, hashtag S-O-L-O-R, shining our light of recovery. Um, So that's from, uh, that is from Sandra, who is she says in her Twitter account, Recovering Alcoholic, and she is being vocal and visible about my recovery, she says. Um, brilliant. Thank you very much, Sandra. And that's great. That's great to know. Uh, I, I retweet as well. So if you follow me on Twitter, you can find the details there. Um, I am doing my first sober Christmas. Um, in, and I worked it out probably 30 years. God, how was I? Like I've been drinking for nearly double my... For double, how does this work? I've been drinking for twice the time I wasn't drinking, if you know what I mean. Does that make sense? So you can divide my life into thirds. One third not drinking, two thirds drinking. And uh, yeah, this is going to be my first Christmas not drinking, so it's going to be interesting. I'm kind of excited about it and looking forward to it. It was a good year to knock the boozing on the head because obviously the things that, the triggers that make you drink are, you know, you get the 
you get a text or a tweet or the missus says we going out or you know you go up to Dublin on the train and you just kind of get all excited and you get the you get the endorphins going and that's where you're oh yeah let's get on the train you know we get on the train and we bring a bottle of prosecco for the train and then we get up into town and we go for a drink and then we go for a meal and then we go for a few drinks afterwards and then can't remember getting home you know but I, you see it's difficult for me not difficult for me it's different for me because I'm generally just a quiet uh, drunk sometimes I mean sometimes things get a little bit out of hand but um, I would be quite able to just sit with people and drink away a fair sup and for you know most people to not really notice that I was that drunk and I'd you know I'd rarely get fall down drunk or vomity drunk um, I say rarely I shouldn't be at all you know um, but the thing I discovered by by not drinking was <clears throat> when I did decide to drink I didn't drink all year um, except for a couple of weekends and when I did drink those weekends it wasn't the recovery it wasn't that I was getting messy uh, that night it wasn't that I got angry it wasn't that I pissed anybody off I you know had my few drinks went to bed probably around midnight and then got up and did whatever I had to do the next day you know, feeling a little bit you know like I'd had a drink but it didn't stop me from doing what I needed to do and you know even going to the gym or going for a walk or going for a run I'd get up and get out and get on you know that was I'd always pride myself on you know getting on with it the next day unless it was a particularly heavy night like an awards night or something but anyway uh the thing that struck me was that I and I didn't really cop onto it it was the uh, anxiety and the fear that followed on the Monday and the Tuesday and, and right up the Wednesday and the Thursday and that like the feeling of like uh, it just exposed you know kind of an underlying feeling of uh, dread like something really bad was going to happen it was very ominous and also that I hated myself you know so I didn't like that part so that's why that's why I've decided to knock it on the head for the week and not drink for Christmas because I want to see what it's like I want to see what it's like so there you go and uh, just to reiterate that um the recovery hour you should follow them on twitter if you're thinking about not drinking um if you're thinking about not drinking over christmas and you want a little bit of support you can follow at recovery hour on twitter uh, recovery hour will have its zoom room open all over christmas and new year for people struggling with staying sober so thank you very much for that sandra um elaine was wondering uh, will uh, helen's aunt be on with her and I was very funny. I said, no, no, the aunt's going to be on with Joe Rogan next week. So she couldn't, she, couldn't, she wasn't allowed to do both. Um, Carl Patterson says, um, just tell her thanks. Yeah, Carl, I, she'll probably listen to this. So, um, yeah, thanks. I think a lot of people want to say just thanks. Uh, give her a virtual hug from us, uh, those of us who needed a pick-me-up and laughs this year. Because I think that's what Helen did to people, what she supplied um, let me tell you a little bit about Helen uh, O'Reilly. Helen O'Reilly is an Irish television producer and executive who worked... I move my head back in here. <laughs> I'm trying to look at my notes. Um, who worked for Orti and the BBC um, in commercial and in commercial broadcasting. She's also worked on a range of factual programming, both as an independent producer and at the BBC, and was Orti's first female director of television, which is... That's quite a feat, you know, that's a, like that alone um, is quite a feat and quite an achievement. She is, uh, it says here she's known for working in RT and the BBC and in commercial broadcasting, but that's, um, that is on Wikipedia. She has in the past been, uh, uh, she has criticised RTE, um, but actually she was quite complimentary of them. There's a little bit of criticism, but nothing uh, that wasn't, you know, that you wouldn't. You know, there's no, there's no bitterness there. You know, it's just just factual stuff. Um, but she was quite complimentary as well of, of things like The Late Late Show, which she has been critical of in the past. Um, so she's fair, fair-minded. Um, and she came back to... Let me try and get this right. She came back to Ireland this year, kind of at the start of um, 2020, selling up uh, in London and moving home and came back to... What ended up happening was she ended up looking after her aunt. So herself and her aunt were locked down together. And she 
started sort of talking on Twitter about the conversations that would happen between herself and her aunt. And uh, people started enjoying them and found them very funny. Um, And they kind of gave people, uh, as Carl mentioned, a little bit of a pick-me-up and, you know, took the... a little bit... inject a little bit of fun into what was going on, the craziness. Um... And it ended up at the end of the year, very briefly, she explained it all herself, but very, when I say very briefly, over a very short period of time, it went from, should I put all the the conversations that she'd been putting up on Twitter between herself and her aunt, um, should I put it into a book? And I I was kind of watching on Twitter and it all sort of happened really quickly, I think in the period of 24 hours where she said, yeah, maybe we'll get a book. And then I think um, she was going to self-publish and then O'Brien Books got in touch. Sorry, the O'Brien Press got in touch and said, uh, maybe we could do something with you. And she basically had to put all the all these conversations that were up on Twitter onto documents and type everything out and maybe do a bit, a bit of an intro and a bit of an explanation. And then that had to be picked up and then they put it into book form and got it printed in time for Christmas. The book is called The Stairlift Ascends because her aunt had a stairlift and a lot of it's almost like the last word of the night would go to the aunt as she ascended up the stairs on her stairlift. You could, you could just picture it. Um, and uh, just if you're wondering, if you're looking to buy the stairlift ascends, some shops are sold out. I know they did a second run. I just saw today on Twitter that they have them in Ireland. Uh If you can't find it in your local bookshop, you can go to O'Brien.ie. So the O'Brien Press. Um why is it saying the O'Brien Press here, is it? It's just O'Brien. Uh, so if you go to O'Brien.ie, uh, they'll be able to point you in the right direction. And they should be able to send it out to you in time for Christmas. So there you go. I think that's enough of an explanation. Oh, yes, she was also responsible for bringing back a much-loved, um, I suppose mostly, you know, mostly British, but like uh, much-loved here in Ireland as well, uh, TV series, which you'll hear about if you listen to the podcast. That's it. I'll be back with another little bit of chat, just a kind of reminder of the a bit of housekeeping after this. It is episode 41 of the Keith Walsh podcast, and it's me chatting with Helen O'Rahilly. Enjoy. Helen, thank you very much for joining me. You're very good for giving me. I know you're busy. You have a lot on your, <laughs> a lot on your hands and a lot on your plate at the moment. So thank you very much for your time. Lovely to be here. Um, I've been follow as most people in Ireland, I think, have mostly been following with interest since you came back uh, from the UK to Ireland. So, could you just and I just I just saw I don't know someone I was following retweeted something, so I started following you. It looked interesting. You looked like an interesting person. <laughs> uh, I, I you know it was, it was there was amusing stuff going on there. I said yeah, that's that'll that'll do me. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, what you were doing over in the UK? I, I know you're with the BBC. Um, were you with the BBC right up until you moved over? And what uh, what was the, what instigated the move home? Uh, yeah, I left Ireland in 88 and I was uh, pretty much in the BBC for all of that time. Um, and with a, a, a period of time back as running RT television, the television section of RT, uh, as direct, the first woman director there. Um, and uh, I went back then to the BBC and uh, again, went back to being a sort of creative director running their digital channels and then on to BBC One. Uh, and I was deputy controller of BBC One and that was a brilliant, brilliant time. Um, and so I've kind of done it all at the BBC. They, they trained me up as a producer, director I went to Elstree and, you know, learned to be a studio director and um, worked on various programs, uh, traveled the world with them. Um, so I had a marvelous, marvelous time. Uh, it's a it's a fantastic organization, not without its faults, but um, they certainly gave me a, a wonderful, you know, 29 years. So now I'm back. Uh, why I'm back is there was um, a lot of dominoes fell last year, namely that uh, uh, a long relationship I was in of 19 years broke broke up. My mother died and leaving my aunt uh, alone at the age of 90 in the family house in Dublin. 
And Brexit as well was also souring uh, a lot for me um, in, in Britain. Um, even in you know, a cosmopolitan place like London, uh, you'd certainly get jabs of the kind of arch nationalism that we're seeing now. Um, and I didn't like it, I didn't like it. And a lot of my London Irish friends, some of them with kids had returned home. So actually, I just thought, you know, the signs are there and why don't you just, you know, you've, you've done what you wanted to do over here, um, sell up, make a bit of money and move back and start again, you know, start anew. And that's exactly what I've done. Uh, yeah, I'm very interested in talking to people who kind of take that uh, decision because, I mean, more than myself, when you get to a certain age, you know, in, a, in, in, in years gone by, you know, I'd be washed up now. Uh, you know, I'd be, I'd be, <laughs> my, um, my career is over. Uh, but for me at the moment, and and it's been really, it's, I have to always say that it's been a really tough time COVID for people, but for me, especially, it's been a very, uh, it's been a great time because I've had time to think and time to look at the future and time to figure a few things out. Did you, so you're coming back with, with an open mind as to what to do next. Had you any sort of plans? Had you any, nothing no no plans except getting back becoming irish again buying a house giving myself a year two years to settle down um you know it's not a huge wrench i mean people say oh god you're 30 years in london but it's only like a an hour flight you know it's not like the same as people who are in the states or australia or anything like that and i had been coming back quite a lot because my mother had been ill so coming back permanently um, I mean, I wrote a few articles in the Irish Times about it. It was like wading through treacle to try and become Irish again, to get all the right documents and all that sort of thing. And my God, the the uh, the uh, civil service make it tricky even for an Irish person. So I really feel for anyone, uh, you know, who isn't Irish trying to come into Ireland. But um, so I knew it would be this very slow process. And I didn't want to rush myself in. I had no idea, no, no idea about getting back into the Irish media or anything like that. Um, and I was going to take my time. Uh, and luckily, you know, selling a place in London gives you money enough that you can buy a place and, and take your time to decide what you want to do next. And the primary primary thing I wanted to do was look after my my aunt. Um, she had looked after my mother and um she needs care and I had to set up a care package and so forth, but also I wanted to, to look after her. And this was all obviously before COVID hit, which of course put, put the, the top hat on us, you know? So uh, literally because I, I had been um, in, a, in, a, in an intensive care unit in an NHS hospital in London a couple of years ago with double pneumonia, don't ask me where I got it, I don't know, but I know what it's like to not be able to breathe. So I am high risk, I had to cocoon, She's 90. She had to cocoon. So here were suddenly two generations in the same house out on the by, by a beach in North County, Dublin, living with each other, obviously, 24-7. And, you know, from my, as I said, the high-flying media career in London at the Groucho Club and in Soho and doing all that, you know, to suddenly be right. The height of my, my fun was walking on the beach, you know. Uh, and so it was actually quite nice because it's just sort of kind of prioritized uh, things for me, you know, um, and gave me a complete sort of gear shift about my life. And actually, okay, it hasn't been lovely for, for I'm, not, I'm not saying it's lovely. I wish the bloody virus wasn't here. It was scary and worrying, but um, it has kind of really rebalanced me um, in, in terms of taking the edges off me and, and um, just, putting somebody else as number one rather than myself, namely looking after the aunt, you know, and having that familiar, familiar bond uh, and prioritizing that. Would you describe it as a period of, would you describe it therapeutically, like as a period of, of therapy? Yeah, I would actually, I would. And I've had therapy. Um, so, um, you know, my life completely shifted. I mean, you know, absolutely um to you know i was no longer in a city i'd lived in and made home for 30 years i was no longer working as a television executive uh you know all my friends neighbors colleagues were gone because i'd moved i did have people here that i've, I've hitched up with again but it was a sort of psychic earthquake you know um but i'm very i'm very practical 
so I put my energies into getting the, get get a get a house, get the house sorted, do practical things, keep on going. I could have, as I said to somebody, I could have just gone under a duvet and just gone, woe is me. But who else is going to help me out of it? I've got I've got one sibling and he's in he's in the UK too. So I was on my own and and nobody was going to save me. Um and I had to do it myself. Um and so you know having having my energies put into her and creating a whole new life here for me really gave me a lot to do and a lot to chew on um and actually the downtime of covid being in a lockdown and all that i could turn energies into when i finally bought a house i hadn't couldn't move into it because of, i had to be with her i used to come down um because i have a I was allowed through the checkpoints because I have a, a carer's pass from, from my aunt. So I came down and did a beautiful, laid out a beautiful garden in my new home. And so I was coming down and doing four hours in the spring every day, making a garden. I mean, you know, I've gone completely eco and, you know, and it, that just gave me the most wonderful feeling and period while we were dealing with this madness, you know? It's as if you went to a Buddhist monk and you said, look, my mother has died. I've, I've, I've come out of a long term relationship. I'm leaving London. And he would say to you, OK, I'm going to give you a garden to tend to and, uh, yeah. you know, an aunt to look yeah. after. And, <laughs> and that yeah. will be your therapy. You know, you couldn't get you couldn't you couldn't. I know. it's no, exactly. I don't want to be flippant, but you couldn't get better therapy, you know. Yeah. And I mean, it wasn't like I was I mean, I was, you know, I, I was thinking, oh, my God you do have nights when you think what have I done you know and it's all, it's not all been trial a lot traipsing through the, the the you know the flowers um I mean there have been very difficult moments and but you know haven't looking looking back on now this year I can't believe how how changed I am by it by it all I was just reading today for example Hillary Fanning's article in the Irish Times where she's talking about almost a fear of leaving level five lockdown. Uh, and she went with a walk on the beach with a friend of hers whose husband is in hospital and they've been cocooning. And it's almost like we have kind of now built these sort of soft surroundings, you know, around us. We're, we're kind of, uh, you know, fearful of going back to normality. Lots of us want it, but there's an element of, oh my God, I'm kind of comfortable where I am now. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm lucky in that I have a house. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, my job hasn't gone by the wayside. My pub isn't, you know, I don't have a pub to, that's shut. You know, I know people are having terrible, terrible times of it. But as it goes, I have been lucky, yes. I spoke to uh, uh, an author called uh, John Connor uh, this week on the podcast, and he, he, was, um, he was a documentary maker, writer, lived in Australia and Canada for a while, had a bit of a breakdown, uh, had a breakdown um, and ended up at home on the farm in Longford, uh, helping his dad calve cows. And that's yeah. the thing that kind of got him up out of bed um, yeah. every day. And it was just, you know, he, he writes about it in his book, uh, The Cow Book, how that was his therapy. That's how he got to where he needed to get to. He didn't know it at the time. Um, but but it was only look on retrospect. He was you know he was going okay. I needed that time, uh, and just it's just amazing the way sometimes, you know, you just end up in the right place for the right amount of time just to get yourself where you need to be. You know. And if you looked at it only in terms of what people would regard as success, if somebody had said to me in the middle of me being in in the BBC in or BBC One, if you suddenly said right in five years time you were going to be back looking after your auntie. Uh, going shopping in Tesco's or Dunn stores, uh, queuing up for her pension, um, and you know, uh, picking up cat poo in your garden. I go, I'm, I end up doing what, you know, and I'd be, what, what's all this been for, you know, what's all this great success and CV been for? And actually, now that I'm in it and going through it and picking up that cat poo in the garden, I'm like, this is grand. And I, I don't see it in any way as, you know, maybe my life hasn't been, well, it obviously has been built at this point, but I'm very happy with it, you know. Um, I had a brilliant, like, I just think I had a brilliant 30 years in, in, in London. And 
you know, this isn't a step down, it's a step aside into a different life. Um, and I've brought with it all the joys and gains of London and, you know, my, my early working life, my middle working life, and I'm still relatively young. Um, so I'll, there's a next chapter that will happen when I decide where I think my energies could be best put. Um, so it's kind of that, it's kind of a lovely feeling. It genuinely is. To, to be in this position. I feel so much happier than I than I have done in, in, in years, actually. Like the famous question, where do you see yourself in five years? You wouldn't have, you would have gotten that wrong. You would have. Oh, <laughs> God. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I know. Ask me that five years ago. I would have said, what? God almighty, no way. But, uh, you know, look, we have to deal with what's given to us. We've all had to have had to shift you know, our, our jump tracks this year and we've all coped in various ways or not coped in various ways. And, um, you know, if this is the hand that's been dealt with, that, that's been dealt to me, then, you know, I'm, de I'm dealing with it and, you know, bring it on, we'll deal with it. Have you found yourself reaching for more philosophical, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say self-help books because that's not what I mean, but more philosophical books uh, about the self and, you know, thinking no. about life. No, <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. No, I, I never reach for those ever. Uh, no, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan of fiction. That's it. I'm, uh, I, I don't. I kind of not that I know it all. I don't know it all, but I know how to get through. I've been a pretty good coper. My mother was a great coper. She had a lot to cope with. I had a very ill father for years, and she taught me stoicism. I think. I didn't know I was I didn't know I was learning it, but I was. Um, and I think, you know, rather than go wildly on a spin, reaching out for hanging off friends or dragging other family members into it, or I, I just have that kind of individual thing of I will I will have to sort it. Now, yes, it does. I have great friends who I've zoomed with and. I've re, which is one of the lovely things is I've reconnected with people that I was at college with here in Dublin. Um, and another person that I was at college with has come back and bought a house two streets away from me. And we were pals together in uni and she was in London for 30 years. So there's odd connections like that. My best old school pal who used to steal Bono's milk bottles. Um, we were mad pals together when we were 16, 17, 18. We're going for walks around the botanic gardens, socially distanced now. And it's like we've never, it's like that 30 years just disappeared, you know? So actually there's great glee there reconnecting with people, albeit we're a bit more wrinkled and dyeing our hair, you know? But it's 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 a great warm feeling to sort of be be embraced back into with the old pals. Um yeah, I, I suppose I was at, there. Actually, there is a movement now. This, this, the stoicism. There is a book that a lot of people are reading. A lot of younger people. I think it's called the Stoics. Uh, right. So, so you, you, you knew that anyway. That. <laughs> yeah, read, yes, the Stoics. That, that sounds is, like one by three. Yeah, it's a good book. But were you? Have you reframed? I mean, of course, you've reframed uh, success. Like, is it? Is does the word success mean something else to you now than it did a year ago or two years ago? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, today. I think it's a, you know, my worst moments were in the middle of lashing rain with the ant annoying me and everything, and I'd have to go and buy stuff at the supermarket, and I'd be treading out with the hang the bags hanging out of my arms. I you just used to say to me, put a, just keep, just, just don't let it wash over you. Put one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other, and you'd have waves of things coming back at you about the house sale in London and about the partner who let you down, and it, it was like batting them all back. And saying just put one front in front front of the other, and it would pass. Um, and success for me now is is you know going up there to her, having a great chat with her, the two of us making an apple tart together, sitting down having a tea and a slice of apple tart, simple pleasures. And I'll I'll be get back in the car and I'll drive down to my house and I'll be flying. And that to me is a successful day. It's not about winning BAFTAs or, you know, uh, you know, being taken out to posh restaurants in Soho. It's to me, make, having the apple tart with the ant is fabulous. So yes, success is very different, uh, but I, it, it's far more warming, shall I say, to have it this way. Mm. Um, 
so what so when did you work for RTE had you had you been with the BBC and come back to RTE for a while yeah I I, I started in RTE way back when I left university when I left uh, NIHE DCU and I worked in Today Tonight which was the forerunner to prime time oh yeah and, Today Tonight, uh, I remember yeah. Well, yeah and uh, I worked for I think it was two and a half three years and then I went left to go I got a job in the BBC then uh, and then I came back to RTE after about 12 years, but didn't sell my house in London, luckily. And uh, then realised probably not far into the RTE job that having worked in the BBC, RTE was obviously different, shall we say, diplomatically. Uh, and then the BBC offered me another big job. So uh, I said bye bye to RTE. Um, and went back there. So uh, it was chop and change with RTE. RTE gave me my start and I loved it. Um, and it was a great place, but it's, it's kind of once you get to the BBC, which is obviously about 20 times bigger. Um, and it's very hard to go back to a, a smaller place and and bring, bring things that you've learned back there. Certainly RTE at that stage wasn't in receptive mode, shall we say. Uh, and it, it, it's a it's far different now, I think. Um, but at the time I came back, uh, you know, I, I may have been a bit too different for them. Um, and uh, so, you know, I just thought, look, you know, just go back to the BBC. This is a good job. And uh, thank God I went back and, and continued to have a, a great career there. I mean, obviously, the, when you start your job, you start with RTE, it's a, it's a different place for you're a different person. So when you went back, having worked at the BBC, what what way did you find RTE? I mean, what were the what were the issues that you, you, you found? I well, mean, we, we, I have to preface this by saying it's a smaller organization. We're a smaller yeah, country, less money, yeah. all that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah, I don't want to be, you know, I've, I've been I've been pretty blunt about RTE in some of my tweets. I've, I still have some great friends. There some very good, productive, creative people. So um, but, but only in, but only from the but only from the point of, you know, how it might. Well, not that we're not that they're going to listen to this and go yeah that's a good idea yeah yeah, yeah exactly but there's you know I, I work there and there's obvious things that I think you know could change but they but for some reason they don't and I, I could never figure it out you know yeah I know uh, I think they hoped by by sort of appointing me that I would suddenly be this um, you know new new broom and which I attempted to be but it's very difficult when there are old structures there uh, there are all in a small organization like this with people who've been in it for a very very long time there's old animosities shall we say between certain people and you have to be loyal to one side or the other uh, and that's very difficult to negotiate and to try and be the diplomat between that sort of people who 10 years ago were not given a job they thought they were going to get and bear a grudge against the person who's now higher than them and all that. And I hated all that nonsense. Um, and really, as well as that, because, and this is, you know, this is this is the main thing still with RTE. It's my job. I had come from a creative organization at te making television programs. And basically, when I landed on RTE, um, I was told to cut programs. Uh, so you know, that was an accountant's job, you know. Um, so really, they got a square peg, you know, for a round hole. And there was nothing I could do. I could make trims and whatever and try and get some cash and park it somewhere. And, you know, but it was very frustrating and, and awful, too, because my, my, my whole thing was about getting creative communities together and really getting the spirit back in, in creative people, producers, researchers, everything. I brought in uh, the start of handheld cameras that allowed assistant producers to film their own stuff, which was, you know, I mean, I, again, with the unions and so forth, I had to be very careful with that. So at every stage, I had difficulties that I was trying to deal with and bring RTE into the new digital age and so forth. And, you know, we look back now and laugh considering the amount of stuff that's done on single camera, single handheld camera, you know, in my day at the BBC, you'd have nearly four usually men you know a sparks to do the electrics and lights your sound ma a sound man a cameraman you know and a production assistant now it's just one person with a camera and a you know uh, and and that's it but when I was trying to introduce it I got a lot of kickback then 
It was kind of hard. And you're on your own. You're in management. You get the salary. So you take the, the, the blowback. Um, and I had a lot of producers on my side who were desperate to push this and so forth. But I had a lot of accountants and management from the other side saying, no, 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 no. And you're just kind of crushed, you know, the wheels kind of crush you. So any spark of creativity that I thought I could bring were really, it was really difficult to, to push any of that through. Um, and despite, I mean, it's just like, they, it was old school. It was old school then. I think it has changed. And from what I hear from good people and good colleagues who are still there, it has changed. And I'm delighted to hear that. Still big problems with finance, of course, and so forth. Um, but uh, it just wasn't for me. It would have crushed crushed my spirit completely had I stayed there. Um, and when it, you know, it came around a good few years later when they were looking for uh, the director general, I had a phone call saying, would I be interested? And I just thought, no, no, I genuinely wouldn't because I, wa I didn't want to. And I think Dee Forbes is doing her best. I really do. This is no, no... Um, no downer on D Forbes, who, who, I, who I don't know. I have met her once, but I don't know her. Um, but I just thought I can't be in that position I was as director of television because you get all, you'll get all the flack, you'll still won't have the money, plus you'll have all the political pressure uh, and the Oireachtas. You'll have to be there at the Oireachtas on, you know, defending X, Y, and Z. And for example, you know the recent thing with everybody photographed in the foyer at the party and all that. You know, she's in the line for that. Um, I just thought I, I, I couldn't, I just don't fancy doing it. I just mm. don't fancy doing it. Because, um, so, you know, good luck to them all and fair play to her. But uh, having had the, the year I had in RT, I just thought, no thanks. I'm very happy where I am. I'll go and, I'll go and get Doctor Who back on television. That'd be nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Excellent. Was that, so are you, are you responsible for Doctor Who then? Yeah, well... The BBC One team, the controller was a great woman called Lorraine Hegacy, and uh, who wasn't a Doctor Who fan, and I was her deputy. And um, uh, I was part of the team that commissioned all the BBC One programmes. And BBC, BB, uh, Doctor Who had been off air for about 14 years, I think. Uh, I'd been a massive Doctor Who fan, the, the uh, John Pertwee days, the Ted Baker days, and um, I'd spotted the TARDIS in a prop, the famous television centre in, in Shepherd's Bush is a massive prop um, prop store. And I'd spotted this dusty blue corner one day coming through the prop store. And it was the TARDIS and it was covered in pigeon shit and everything. And I just brought me back to the sort of magic of television, you know. So I began hassling the controller. I said, Doctor Who, look, time computer generated imagery is back. It's much cheaper. We could make this massive. It could be a fabulous Saturday night programme. So she was like, no, 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 she wasn't really interested. And I kept at her and at her and at her. And finally, in frustration, she said to me, we had a joining sort of offices. She said to me, Helen, you're annoying me. She said, I didn't know that. Well, that's my job, you know. And she said, right. She said, go and find out, start it, start it. She said, find out who the, where the rights are because it'd been a Hollywood film. So we had to track back. <clears throat> it hadn't been a successful film, but we had to try and make sure rights were back. And believe it or not, the Daleks on Doctor Who, if you're familiar with it, the Daleks are not owned by BBC. The Daleks are owned by the Terry Nation estate, who was the man who came up with them in the, in the 60s. And even though Terry Nation himself has, is, has died, his estate protects everything to do with Daleks. Can you believe it? So we had to negotiate like a whole deal because you couldn't bring back Doctor Who without the Daleks, you know. So that had to be done, you know. So this was an absolute, this was all perfect for me for for well, well we got got in obviously bbc drama then and then we got the the marvelous russell davis to be to, to be the, the showrunner and uh, it took off you know but that was a wonderful baby to look after and the excitement around that was fantastic and that's what television is about but that's the bbc i mean that was a million pounds an episode you know a million quid an rte would get you an entire season you know of current affairs programs you know so look, you know, I was able to play in the big tent. So once you're able to play in the big tent, it's very tricky to think you'll come back and do, yeah. do you know, the little, the little it, things. And I suppose therein is the difference between what RTE have to do and what the BBC have at their disposal. Exactly. They can be more creative. They can be, and, and like to just bring, to, you know, to decide to maybe look at bringing back Doctor Who's. Yeah. You'd, lo you'd love to be in a job or in a position yeah. in RTE to be able to go, 
you know, let's bring back Wanderley Wagon, but make it, yes, for, yes. make it with, you they know. Have, they have brought, they have brought back the den, the, though, which the, I the, think is fantastic. Yeah, great move. You know, it, yeah, fantastic move. So there is, that's what I'm saying is that it doesn't have to be million pound. You know, the den is now, is now speaking to the people originally who it was aimed at, as well as their, their kids. And I watch it now on a Sunday evening and it cracks me up. And I think this is, this is genius, actually. This is the madness we need in this, mad COVID time and now I won't I won't schedule anything in except the den on Sunday night so that's a little bit of wonderful creativity and I think also I used to slag off the late late show quite a lot because you know my old standing thing was oh god somebody they found somebody in the RTE canteen and dragged them in for the Mm. show you know and actually I think it's done really well in the non-audience period I think Ryan has done exceptionally well um uh, getting people in for a very interesting much more intimate um uh, you know conversations um and i think that has sort of really helped uh, and, and it's classic public service broadcasting you still the entertainment is there and so forth but it's been poignant and moving and the toy show last week was superb you know so or do do those things that sing to our hearts as irish people that that the bbc can't do you know yeah. uh so we will press number one uh sometimes and uh and it's you know that's that's reassuring to see that that's still it's still a part and parcel of our, our culture and long may it be so um the i know a lot about doctor who but only because i'm a fan of frank skinner and i listen to his saturday morning uh, he does a breakfast show on saturday morning oh yes yeah on uh, absolute radio and uh so i'd imagine I'd imagine if you ever, I don't know if you ever met him, but if you were to meet him and tell him that you brought back Doctor Who, he would probably, he'd possibly marry you or, or yes. not, that you, <laughs> not, that you'd, not that you'd want to marry him, but he'd probably possibly, he'd definitely be friends for life anyway. So Yeah. Oh, we were, we were very popular around the BBC Television Centre, even among our own BBC colleagues, you know, when it was going forward, you know, they were, they were angling for all sorts of gossip and they'd really, you know, be slipping your packets of fags and things <laughs> to get the latest gossip, yeah, you know. Because I'd so, imagine but, it was all a closely guarded secret yeah, that was going on. All, yeah. 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 Tell us about uh, taking to Twitter. Like, I'm only aware of you from, from Twitter, really. And did you, when you arrived back in Ireland and you were sort of going through what you were going through and getting yourself up and running, did you... Like, were, were, you, were you on Twitter anyway? Was it something you said, oh, I might yeah, just start? No, no, I've been on Twitter for 10 years, talking nonsense uh, for 10 years. Um, just the usual, you know, I, I had some good friends here in Ireland. Um, uh, so my, I had a mix of followers between Britain and Ireland. Um, started to get more. I ran the Ireland account uh, 12 right, months yeah. ago, November. And that sort of kind of doubled my... Um, followers and I'm now up to about 30, 32,000. I mean, this isn't an influencer level. This isn't like, you know. Yeah, you're not, you're not Kim Kardashian. Whatever. But it's not a bad figure, you know. No, it's good. It's nice. It's, yeah. So I talk, I mean, I was, you know, I'm into politics. I'm into current affairs. I'm into photography, lots of things. And just, I think when COVID hit and just Twitter was saturated with either pandemic stuff or Trump stuff or Brexit stuff. I just one night put up something about my aunt because the two of us were living cheek by jowl and, you know, with no stimulation other than a walk on the beach or something like that. I it was a microcosm. And I realized that actually it's language. It's things that are said that you get the laughs from. And my, my aunt speaks in quite staccato and very, very blunt forms. So she doubled me up with things she said. She was, I mean, what it started with was not a tweet, actually. She, she, I was talking to her and she was talking about a man she worked with. And she said, you know, he ate and ate and ate. And he sighed. He just was getting fatter and fatter and fatter. And I was looking at her saying, right, okay. And she said, but you know what the funny thing was? And I said, what? She goes, his head stayed the same size. Do you know what I mean? And I just, I just thought, what? You know, it doubled me up. And I thought, I thought, Jesus, you're a character. And she is a character. So I started, look, can I put some of these things down on tweets? Because they make me laugh. They make me meet other people, make other people laugh. So she said, yeah, don't use my name. Don't use a photo of me. But yeah, if you want, if you think she doesn't think she's funny, that's the great thing. She doesn't say them for my benefit or for an audience, you know. So I started to do this thing. And usually she'd come out with stuff as she took this ancient stair lift, which makes noises like 
an arthritic R2D2, you know, it goes up the stairs, huffing, pinging, winging, you know, and she goes, you know, sort of go up the stairs and she'd shout down, Helen, I've got a job for you tomorrow. What's that? Can you get that fast wash thing to clean out the bins? You know, it'd be something basic and horrible. And yeah, right. And I'd be sitting in the kitchen with my head in my hands going, right, that's joy for tomorrow, you know. So I put something this down and just call it the hashtag the stairlift ascent. And it took off because there were hundreds and thousands of people in similar houses throughout Ireland doing the same thing for either looking after elderly people or their partner was driving them mental and, you know, and just having these sort of microcosm, you know, of domestic horror as well as fun, you know. And I'd only put them down when she said them. There was nothing added and nothing, nothing subtracted. So they'd be maybe two a week or three a week, you know. And people would start saying, has your aunt not said anything funny today? And I said, no, <laughs> that's not how it works, you know. <laughs> you have to wait, you know. And so it's it's kind of, it's only how it's become a, a book now. It, it it was literally people started saying, Helen, you've kept us going throughout the year with these Stereolift Ascent tweets. Uh, is there a book? Is there a book? Is there a book for Christmas? And I literally, two, three weeks ago, Googled self-publishing. Never gone near the, world, the publishing world. Had no clue about it. Uh, I looked at self-publishing. Oh, Jesus, right. What do I have to do now? Now, how much would that cost? Now, you know, because I can't... How much will that... And then one of my Twitter followers, I've no Brian of the O'Brien Press, rang me. He said, this is... Helen, this is madness. This is what I'm going to suggest. Madness. He said, every single Christmas book has been printed and is ready to go when the bookshops open again or are ready in stock. We're going to do this. Do you want to do this? I said, well, yeah. So he said, right, get me all the texts, get me all the tweets, get me a bit of artwork. And literally said, I said, well, I'll have to take them off screenshots and get them into text form. So I did that literally at nearly a, did an 18 hour shift, drove over to Rathgar, literally nearly flung them out the window of the car at him because we were distancing. And he flung back in the contract <laughs> through the window. <laughs> and he did all the artwork on them, or his team did. And they were in the printers four days later. And now we're on our second run. And it's, it was the fastest selling pre-order this year. And I can't believe it. I mean, it's look, it's, it's, it's not Joyce. It's not Beckett. It's a book to shove in with your auntie's present you know what I mean and 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 uh, that's what it is to give people it's also a good kind of diary of the time we've just been through because I kind of remind us that Operation Fonacht and when the hairdressers reopened because because my aunt was obsessed with the hairdressers she was obsessed with well, we can't go anywhere Gerard isn't open you know and all that so it, it's sort of it's on her chronology of department stores and hairdressers but some people, a lot of people are obviously finding that sort of similar joy uh, in recounting what's happened this year. So it's just been fantastic, you know? Yes, it's a, as you say, like it's, it's almost like a diary of the time uh, of COVID yes. in a funny way for a lot of people. And she, she could be quite cutting. I mean, that's, that's that generation, I suppose. You know, she wouldn't. Oh, yeah. She wouldn't hold back or uh, the, you she know, wouldn't the, be worried about offending your feelings. Oh, well, there's one about when we're in Arnott's and she says to me, um, uh, I left her brows in the rails. She doesn't buy a lot. She just loves the brows, you know, the brows and the coffee is what she likes. And uh, I went off to buy myself a couple of pairs of knickers and I, she said, I documented this. I said, she said, where have you been? I said, the laundry department. She said, what you get? She pokes at the bag. What you, what you get? And I said, oh, a couple of pairs of sloggy knickers, the brand sloggy. She goes, oh, I didn't know they made them in your size. Second cheek of her. I mean, you know, only a size eight woman would say that, you know what I mean? And that's what she said to me. No, she didn't mean it cruelly. I don't, you know, she's not cruel. What just came into her head and the kind of filter has gone of, Helen might take that the wrong way. That's gone, you know? So it's this, and you have to, I just have to laugh all the yeah. time at her, you know? She puts demands on me as well as cutting me to the core, you know? Which still makes me laugh, and that's why I—that's why I decided after I could put the book out and let people laugh at the size of me sluggy knickers, you know. It's a beautiful, beautiful relationship you have there. <laughs> and, uh, so, I mean, the thing that always there's always something to take the good out of it, and the and the people on Twitter who who just want to who just don't want to see something. For me, if I look at that, and and for you, and for most people, they look at that and they're going, "That's so that's you know to see the." 
to see that from start to finish, how that evolved and how it developed and how it became a thing and how, you know, and then it's a book and you're like, wow, that's brilliant. You know, it's, you know, I, why, yeah. I, white eyed going, ah, that's so cool that that happened. Yeah. And that's it. The, yeah. But the negativity, yeah. the negativity, like, it's almost as if these people are waiting for something nice to happen to someone and they've got these ready-made tweets or... Yeah, I think there is a little coterie and they it was just some of them were sent to me and that's, it happens on Twitter. That's the, the sort of sordid side of Twitter, really. And these are Irish people and I've got to, you know, I'm not a happy, clappy kind of American style. Hey, you've all got to praise me. You know, it's not... Um, I, you know, and I'm happy to address things. Like if people have said to me, is your aunt happy with this now? Because, mm. you know... Am I taking advantage of a 90-year-old aunt? No, she doesn't have dementia. She doesn't have Alzheimer's. She knows all about it. She's given me her permission and she's getting a great lease of life out of it, right? And I think because she was in her tweets, she was anonymous uh, and there was no photos, some people thought I was making her up. Mm -hmm. So I think that would have been answered by the whole Irish Times article and the, the name Monica, Aunt Monica, and the photo of her. And she demanded that, you know? I said, are you sure? And I, oh God, yeah, she didn't want me having the limelight. <laughs> so that set off, I think that pushed away the people who said, A, I'm making it up. She does, the, either the aunt exists and this is a whole made up. You know, you will always have this. It's the era of fake news. Um, another lot of people, and this is kind of the really, you begin to worry, you begin to fear for the mental health of people like this who suggested that I was not her full-time carer because I lived, I had now got my own house and live 20 minutes away. I, I feel like saying, just read the revenue, okay? By all means, report me to the revenue. Just read the revenue. In fact, I copied in Revenue Ireland in the tweet. You know, they wanted to report me to revenue, you know, for writing a book which about which I'm, I'm going to earn a very small amount of money, you know, even if it's a bestseller, trust me, I know, just look I up know. the royalties, you know, I know. I'll, be able, I'll be able to take her out to earn it for a nice day and I get her a winter coat, maybe that'll be it. Yeah. But you swear to God, I was like, you know, on Michael Flackey levels of, you know, millionaire star, you know, but people are going to report me to revenue because I'm not really a carer. Uh, also somebody saying, here she comes back from the level of grudgery. She's bought her own house in Dublin. She's got a big car and here she is writing and making money about it. Excuse me, I've got a big car that's 12 years old that cost me two, that has a big engine in it that cost me 200 euros a month to tax. You know, they think I'm driving a big brand new Range Rover. You know, no, 12 years old. And, you know, the idea, I sold a big house in London. I came back and bought a smaller house in Dublin, you know? But people want to have the go, you know, how dare she come back and flaunt her skills or her, you know, and these were people I wouldn't mind, but some of the people were great uh, supporters <clears throat> during <clears throat> marriage equality and all of that. I've never met them, yeah. but we were talking and all of that. And they've gone into sort of a cabal of let's have a pop. So to be fair, if that's the world they want to live in, let them live in it. But I think, you know, seeing the aunt and having her now in the picture has put pay to a lot of that. But also, <laughs> I think that it's like, you know, here's an, a 90 year old woman. Uh, she's lived a full life. She's still has lots to say for herself. And like, take you out of the picture, just if I may. <laughs> like, this is we're getting to read the thoughts of a 90 year old Irish woman during COVID. It's a. That's yeah. a, like that's an important document, and I like I'm not blowing smoke. I'm just saying, take you out of the picture. You have given us something that not many people like. The one thing we say about people when they pass on, and I hope she has many years left, um, a, a, a good few anyway, is that we just we should have spoken to them. We should have asked them things. We should yeah. have talked to them. We should have recorded what they were saying. And 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 I hear it all the time from family members. Oh, we should have. I should have wrote down what my mother said. I should have wrote. Here we yeah. have it. Here we have it. It's a yeah. it's a great bit of history. It's a, it's a document. And that's what I did. It, the germ of it, really, it was in my head because before my mum died last year, for the previous five years, just on Facebook, where I have now friends as opposed to virtual friends, um, where I have a group of, of British and Irish friends, um, I, I did um, a thing called Ma and Me, which was a verbatim uh, chats that my mother and I would have down the phone between London and Dublin and 
they were they were hilarious and uh, they were surreal they were um, I, I must have done about 60 of them there were some of them were short some of them were long they'd be about anything from a film she'd seen on television for a misunderstanding of if some of them were bolshy as hell you know um, but I used to do them with her again with her knowledge with her permission and that was only to my to people I know I never put them on Twitter now when she died um, I only sort of at the end of last year, I started, I kept them as well, um, you know, from, from Facebook, but I'd looked at them and they brought back wonderful memories of this woman who had died that year. Not in a kind of morbid, I want to cry about her, but how sparky she was, how funny she was, how straightforward she was. And they're like, I know they're there. I don't look at them regularly or anything, but they are fantastic memories. I wish I'd recorded her. I genuinely wish I'd recorded her because I can hear the tone and the cadence and everything in the conversations. And in a way now I've got this, you know, sterling sense and, and it's my aunt, it, it, it's, it's her way of talking and it's her, you know, it's, it's uh, I can hear her when I read them. And you're right, this is, this is the voice of a 90 year old in this pandemic. And she gives out about, you know, when she goes through the phase of she doesn't believe it's real, you know, you're making this up. Uh, she gives out she was going to um, she was going to break lockdown and go on the bus into town because she didn't believe me that Arnott's was shut. And then I told her I had to lie to her and I said, well, the guards will stop you at the checkpoint and they'll stop your serve service. And that's the end of Judge Judy. <laughs> and she believed me. So that's the only time I've had to lie, you know. So, um, you know, so it's it's. Uh, it is a sort of an interest because, you know, she has been literally, I mean, at least I've been traveling up and down between the two houses. She's been stuck there, you know, um, and you can see the progressive and then the release, the release when she gets out the other side and is able to have a trip. And, you know, so, yes, it is a bit of social history. It is a bit of social totally history. Totally is. And also it's like, I think that we've many carers around Ireland and many people looking after relatives and aunts and mammies and daddies and sisters and whatever family members. And even to know for them to kind of go, okay, hang on, there's a voice here. And for us to realize there's a person here. Yeah. You know, that, that this is, this is a person. This is not just a patient, do you know? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And one thing, one um, thing that I did say in the Irish Times was, um, which I haven't talked about really on Twitter, is that uh, as, as many of our sleep patterns have been disrupted and we're awake at all hours of the night, I remember um, ever since I've been doing um, the stair lift descent and I've woken up at three or four, I have got uh, private messages, direct messages in Twitter from people around the country saying, are you up? or you whatever and and having conversations like on Twitter with people at three in the morning having a real downer um you know carers um who've had somebody sick all day or have been shouted at all day or whatever and they're awake fully awake at three o'clock in the morning you know I'm not turning myself into the fifth emergency service here that, that's not my skill I'm not I, I'm not a therapist or a social worker but I've dealt I've had about 40 or 50 like late night middle early morning conversations with people at the end of their collar at the pin of their collar caring and it's taken you know I'm not that's what I say about this book I'm not making a joke of COVID it is not a joke it's about surviving COVID mm. as both you know an elderly person or perhaps if you're caring for a younger person as well about the carer and the depths to which many people have gone in, in their in their job in their in their daily lives and it's such a lonely job. It's such a lonely job um, that, you know, somehow you'll feel yourself at three in the morning having 20 minute conversation, just saying, hang in there, you know, hang in there. Yeah. And, and, and they're doing it to me, too, because they're, you know, saying, I feel what you're going through, too, you know. And I've been honest, I've put up tricky ones, tricky days when it's been tricky uh, without, you know, you have to be careful without uh, without trying to, you know, expose my aunt's privacy too much. But, you know, we've had tough days, very tough days. Um, and I'll just say that was a bit of a day, you know, wow, yeah. uh, here's hoping for a better one tomorrow. And that just gives people sort of carte blanche to sort of get in touch with you and say, Jesus, you know, me too, you know, which is, has helped, you know. Um, uh, and I can't wait, you know, but the thing is, like, I'd much prefer not to be doing that. I'd much prefer to be out the other side of this. We all <laughs> want to. But this was, this was my way of, of saving myself, you know. <laughs> 
Well, you saved yourself. You probably saved a lot of other people as well. And uh, it's it's just funny stuff and it's great. The stair lift descends and uh, I love the, the crochet cover. Um, uh, it's um, it all ties in very nicely. And I've enjoyed reading your your, your tweets. And uh, and it's, yeah, as I said, I think you've kept a lot of people entertained and sane. Uh, so, uh, Lucas, um, I really appreciate your time. I know you're busy. Uh, so uh, I, I'm going to let you go and uh, enjoy. Have you, are you a lot on this evening? Are you a bit of shopping off, uh, to, te- I've off got to Tesco? A, I've, got a, I've, I've got a. Any, uh, any bins to clean? Any bins to clean out? I've got an appointment with a cat litter tray and a bottle of wine. That's, <laughs> that's the height. Of, that's don't, the height of tonight. <laughs> don't get those. Don't get those two mixed up now. No, I won't. I won't. Love you so, Dickie. Um, thanks a million. Good luck. Take care. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Bye. There you go. That is Helen O'Reilly, and um, the book is out now and available for Christmas and probably after Christmas as well. Lovely stock and filler, and it is the tales of Helen and her aunt getting through lockdown together and the conversations that happened sometimes. Um, sometimes the comments and can be could be cutting, but. Uh, you wouldn't expect anything less from a lady who had, uh, you know, gotten... To, you, when you get to that stage in your life, you're entitled. Absolutely entitled. Um, and I just love the spirit of the aunt. And I've also enjoyed Helen sharing pictures of her aunt uh, and herself, like on holidays. Or, you know, she's a very glamorous, uh, very glamorous woman, her aunt. And uh, just lovely to see it. You know, the, the point I was trying to make during the podcast was... Uh, you know you're you're still relevant and you still have things to say and you're still alive as long as you're alive and uh, it's just brilliant to see you know this woman getting to towards um the latter stages of her life and um being the subject of a book you know it's just like that and her you know her chat her witty banter uh, being published in a book so there's I tell you what there's hope for it all I might start a book myself you know uh, so thank you very much Helen and thanks to her aunt for uh, as we said you know helping a lot of people get through the lockdown because it's hard being the care and there's plenty uh, out there and sometimes sometimes it's all very kind of uh, you know the, the you the praise for the carers is um, obviously very welcome that we praise carers but um, it you know there's, it lacks humour and it lacks a bit of life and a bit of honesty and a bit of humanity um, and a lot of the time that's what gets people through the hum- the humour and the humanity and the crack and uh, and you have to find that that's the trick is to find that um, that's it yeah thanks Helen uh, I am going to go now and join my family before it's too late it's half past 10. Oh, where did the evening go? It's Thursday evening and uh, I'm going to go and try and catch up with my family for half an hour before they all go to sleep. My daughter, my daughter Anna is studying for a business exam. Business. <laughs> Don't know why I said it like that. And Finn is uh, having the time of his life. Just gadding about upstairs. Playing Fortnite with his mates. Kicking toilet rolls around downstairs, wherever he is, there's stuff going on, he's a busy lad Um, so yeah uh, listen, as always, thank you very much for listening, do tell your friends do uh, go and uh, if you're a new listener, you're very welcome Um, if you're an OG, so anybody if you're a new listener now, and you've listened to this you are now an OG, so anybody who has listened to the podcast in 2020 and maybe the early parts of 2021, I might push it out, is an OG, an original. Um, so you can email me, keithwalsh.walsh at gmail.com or keithwalshpod at gmail.com. Send me an email. Tell me, Keith, hey, I'm an OG. I'm listening now. And uh, I don't know, I'll put you down on, on a special OG list. And then if we do a live show, I can invite the OGs first to the live show. Um, try and uh, listen back if you can. And hopefully you'll enjoy some of my other uh, chats with guests and there's also uh, one I release every Monday which is me and a, a friend of mine my friend Mike and we just chat uh, it's kind of a lot of nonsense but uh, we enjoy it so there's lots to discover we're on episode 41 if this is your first time listening you've got 40 more to enjoy and yeah there's definitely going to be one or two in there that you like 
Uh, so give it a go. Um, as I said, tell your friends. Do uh, give us a review. Do subscribe. Trying to remember all the things. This is part of the Acast network, just FYI. There is a, a contributor link in the description of the podcast if you want to give us a few quid. Like, not, we, I don't expect much. You know, the price of a Boeing 747 or a massive yacht. You know, not not that's it. 250 grand. And it's a one-off payment. So it's not like you have to give us your bank details. You just, you know, throw in a few quid, 100 grand, whatever you have to spare. Um, and that'll keep us going for a couple of weeks at least. Anyway, uh, that's it for me. i got to go. Um, thanks again to Helen. Thank you for listening. Really do appreciate it. And I will be back um, on Monday, which is a ridiculous thing to say because, you know, if you want and you haven't listened to the rest of them, you can just listen to another one now. So I'll be back in a minute. Do you know what I mean? Anyway, I'll talk to you soon. Be good. Mind yourselves. And especially over Christmas, mind your head. If you feel like you're... What happens to me sometimes is I feel like things are getting away from me. Like I, I can't focus on things. I can't focus on a task. Things are just kind of like... Everything's floating and I can't... Nothing... I can't tie anything down. And that's where, you know, meditation helps me and that's where walking and exercise helps me. Uh, but your first port of call could be just to pick up the phone and get in touch with a counsellor and have a chat with them. Um, but don't feel like you can't. And don't feel like you can't even send me a message. Uh, you can DM me on Instagram or Twitter and just say, look, I'm not feeling it at the moment. And I might not be able to help you in that moment, but I'll definitely be able to put you in touch with somebody. And the first part of you know, getting beyond that feeling of desperation. Like you can't, you know, you can't grasp what's going on and you're not enjoying, th- you're not enjoying life, you know. Um, the first step to getting beyond that is just to say something to somebody. Honestly, I swear to God. And we, nobody will, it's not a weakness. It's, it's you know, it's actually a strength. Uh, you know, when you when you share how you're feeling with other people and being, being vulnerable and all that. So, um there was, uh, yeah, there was something I, I tweeted during the week, and uh, it's that uh, you don't have to be at rock bottom to to want things to be better. So you don't have to hit rock bottom; just you just want things to be better. And uh, if you're not enjoying life, don't be like I did for years. I was like, oh, this is just probably the way everyone's feeling, and I don't think it was. And even if it is. Still not good enough if you're not enjoying your life. Anyway, so um, reach out to somebody. Have a happy Christmas. It's a tough time of the year, but it's also a great time of the year. And um, yeah, talk to you soon. Bye. Good luck. Gotta go now. Definitely have to. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.